Before we jump into um, the book, uh, before we jump into this section, um, here is a handout about um, wisdom literature, specifically the abuse of wisdom literature, um, and just whole issues with um, that. For one example, people take sayings out of context. Second, it's common for wisdom terms, categories, styles, and literary devices to be misunderstood. And third, people usually overlook the line of argument in a wisdom discourse. And all of these three ways um, result in wisdom literature being misunderstood and as a result misapplied. That was smooth, Aisha. Um, and so this, this teaching isn't really going to go too much into the details of the book of Job because in my prep I felt led to um, really help show you guys the line of argument in the book of Job, how it works, the structure, um, the background, things that help us think about it. Um, yeah, okay. And so... And this is particularly relevant in Job because a lot of what the friends say sounds not totally wrong. Um, However, we do know what the friends say is wrong because God says to them, you have not spoken rightly at the end of the book. And so this paper is a two-in-one because on the back, um, it's also talking about the friends' wisdom in Job. Um, Yeah, and so... Yeah, it can be a confusing book, and I don't have a hard and fast rule on saying, okay, so this verse is biblical truth, and that verse is not biblical truth because it's messy, and I haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, But just know it's okay to be confused and be like, what in this book? And that's totally normal. So, yes. Okay, so cycle one. Um, Yes, this is... We already talked a little bit about the theme of this cycle. Um, And so something that I wanted to highlight about Eliphaz is his perspective. And so in these three places, um, you really see the way that he thinks sort of come out. You know, in 4.8 he says, as I have seen, and then goes on to talk. In 5.3 he says, I have seen, and then continues to talk. And then 527, he wraps up his section by saying, we have searched this out. It is true. And so, um, and then in 412 through 16, Eliphaz describes and sort of sets up the spiritual encounter that he has with the spirit. And then in 17 to 21, um, he says what the spirit says. And... I thought that this part was really interesting because of how much build up before he actually talked about this spiritual encounter. Um, and yeah, you can really tell that he placed a lot of importance on this experience because you see um, the same concepts coming up as he continues to speak in other cycles. And so um, this spirit asks a rhetorical question to Eliphaz saying, can mortals be righteous before God? Can human beings be pure before their maker? And so although the spirit says it like a rhetorical question, we know right off the bat that whatever else the spirit is going to say is not true because, yes, we know that humans can be. 
Um, Job was a mortal who was righteous before God, the author tells us. And so off the bat, we know that whatever wisdom the spirit has, it's not truth because there are already flaws in it. And so I really don't like Eliphaz. I think he's whack. So <laughs> Okay. All right. So Bildad's, Bildad's advice to Job comes in chapter 8, 5 to 7. And he says, if you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore to you, yikes, your rightful place. Sorry, it's hooked up there. It's going to be loud. <laughs> um, okay, about ready. Um, so far, <laughs> In chapter 11, 14 to 19, is this. If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hands, put it far away and do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will have confidence because there is hope. You will be protected and take your rest in safety. You will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. Many will entreat your favor. And so this is the advice that is given in this section. Um, And so Bildad and Zophar here are pushing the accuser's case. They suggest that Job appease, um, appease God through directing his heart rightly, through putting his iniquity far away, through seeking God, saying, if you just admit your sin, address your sin, and stop sinning, stop sinning then you'll be restored again. You'll be right back where you were and maybe even better. The problem with this is that the point should not be so that Job can once more get physical protection, so that Job can once more get his physical possessions restored. And he also hadn't sinned to deserve this anyway. And so this is not tenable advice, most of all because what it shows about God's character, that he needs to be appeased for his indiscernible wrath. And so some specific things that I just wanted to draw our attention to is that in 712, Job begins to talk to God for the first time. Um, And he will continue to do so on and off, sometimes talking to his friends, sometimes talking to God, sometimes talking about God. Um, Yes, am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? Why have I become a burden to you? And so it's fairly easy to tell when Job is talking to his friends versus when he's talking to God versus when he's talking about God. his friends can't do that to Job, so it's not too difficult to tell who Job is addressing. Um, and so in 9.22-23, this is an example of Job talking about God, and here he begins to toe the line. Um, yes, so Job says this about God. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the eyes of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? And so Job uses his experience 
to make a statement that God does not enact justice in the world and actually he just paints a really ugly picture of Yahweh mocking at the calamity of the innocent. Um, yeah, and so we see that Job is struggling in his view of the character of God through his suffering. Um, and that sort of begins right there. And so, as the conversation continues, Job's words to God become more severe. Um, such as in 10, 3 to 22, he says, um, Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the schemes of the wicked? Are not the days of my life few? Let me alone, that I may find a little comfort. And so these are the words of a man in deep grief and sorrow. And I don't know about you, but I know I sure have made my fair share of um, accusations against God during my seasons of pain. And so, cycle two, this is the section where um, the friends focus on the fate of the wicked as well as insult and humiliate Job. And so, these three verse references um, are sort of the sections that the friends talk about what happens to the wicked. You know, they writhe in pain all their days. They will not escape from darkness. The light of the wicked is put out. Their memory perishes from the earth. And so far, he's crazy. They will perish forever like their own done. Wowza. Okay. Um, so, it's really interesting that the friends spend so much time talking about the fate of the wicked. And what's also interesting is that the way they describe what happens to the wicked is actually Job's own situation. Um, and it's the ways that Job has expressed his feelings and his circumstance. And so the friends are doing this sort of in a roundabout way. Um, they're saying something about Job through the way that they're communicating about the wicked. Job's situation is just like these horrible people, and the friends are implying it is because Job has been wicked. Um, in some way, shape, or form, that this is happening to him. And so Job's response to um, all that they talk about what happens with the wicked is that he's actually seen the exact opposite. Um, and so in chapter 21, you know, 7 to 16 and 30 to 33, he says, Why do the wicked live on, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their houses are safe from fear. They spend their days in prosperity. And so Job's like, I don't know what you guys have seen, but I've seen the wicked actually do awesome, and they are set up. Um, he has seen them live happy and prosperous lives, while he, a righteous person, has become God's target. And so in this second cycle... Pretty much all the, the friends talk about is the wicked. Um, and besides this, they just have some things to say, some kind things to say to Job. Like, you are doing away with the fear of God. Your iniquity teaches your mouth. You turn your spirit against God. How long will you hunt for words? And so Job also gets really worked up um, with all three friends and his emotions spill over too. And so if you thought, oh, it's right there. 
And so if you thought that this was a peaceful conversation between friends, think again, because it is not a party. I think I like this one a lot because it really conveys the emotions, like they're just pointing fingers at him and jokes covered in boils and misery um, is enduring it. I liked this guy's paintings because he always has the wife in there. And I like that. I think that's cool. Yeah. So I now want to address a commonly quoted verse um, from the book that appears in this section. And see what happens. Okay, so in 1925, Job says this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And so many people think that here Job is talking about Jesus, and this has been a common interpretation for a long time. Um, And so I thought that for a long time as well, but we um, also need to pay attention to what else Job says about this Redeemer, or as your footnote says, this Vindicator throughout the rest of the book. Um, In 933, Job's talking about this character, there is no umpire between us who might lay his hand on us both, talking about someone who would mediate between him and God. In 1318, Job says, I have indeed prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Um, Again, Job thinks that he is the one on trial, and Job is confident that he's actually in the right. Job thinks that there has been an injustice against himself and wants the accusations cleared. And so in 31, 35, 37, he says that... Oh, that I have one to hear me. Here is my signature, that the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I have the indictment written by my adversary. Surely, I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. And so Job wants to know the charges against him um, to cause the suffering like he had experienced. Job wants to be justified in God's sight because of his innocence. This is what Job is talking about. And so this is not the justification that we as believers in Jesus have before God. Job wanted to be justified because he knew that in this situation he was blameless. We need to be justified before God through Jesus because we are sinful. We look to Jesus so that we can be redeemed because the accusation against us is our sin against God. And that indictment cannot be cleared in any other way than the blood of Jesus. And so Job is not looking for someone who will will wipe his scarlet sins away and make him white as snow. Job is looking for someone who will say to God, hey, this guy didn't deserve what he got. This is not what Jesus died to do. What Job is looking for in a vindicator and the redemption that we have in Jesus are two totally different categories. And this is not to say that Jesus is not found in the book of Job, because he is. He is here in a way we will explore later, and in a way that I believe is much more beautiful than a verse or two taken out of context. Okay. So, cycle three, 22 to 27. Um, Yes. And so this is the cycle where the friends directly accuse... Job's behavior and his character. Um, some pretty gnarly stuff said about this guy. I believe Eliphaz in 22, 5 to 9 says this. 
Imagine someone saying this to you and you know that you haven't done any of these things and be pissed. Is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty-handed in the arms of the orphans. You have crushed. He does not hold back. Um, And so after this lengthy list comes two more verses that just seal the deal um, and show you Eliphaz's heart. So after this list of accusations, then come 22, 10 to 11, where Eliphaz says, Therefore, snares are around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so that you cannot see. And so Eliphaz is saying that the reason why all of these bad things happened to Job was because of his undisclosed sin. Um, Yes, and we the reader know that Job did not commit any of these sins, and he did not deserve what happened to him because of the setup in the heavenly scene. Um, And so Eliphaz's reasoning is so roundabout. He doesn't know that Job actually committed these sins, but in his worldview of a retribution principle, um, he has to assume that Job committed horrendous things to make sense of Job's suffering. Um, Yeah. And so then we see more appeasement advice, which is similar to what Zophar and Bildad have given Job. Um, in 22, 21 to 28, he says, If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness from your tents, then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. So what he's saying is that if you do this, then this will happen. Um, if Job would just return, if you remove unrighteousness, then life would get better again. Um, but the problem is there's no action that Job needs to return from. There's no unrighteousness he has to remove, and there's no reason for him to appease God. And Job recognizes this, and in chapter 27, verses 2 to 6, he says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. So he's saying, you know, it would be falsehood for Job to say, I committed this sin, and so God... Um, I repent. It would be deceit if Job said, I did strip the naked of their clothing. Whoops, let me just turn back to you, God. That would be falsehood. That would be deceit. Um, And so this is key. Because within the structure of the book, this is the last time that Job speaks to his friends. Um, And here he disregards their advice. He knows he is innocent. He knows he has integrity. And for this reason, he refuses to accept the appeasement advice of the friends in order to be returned to his former glory. And so this is important because the friends are silenced after this, and um, they represent the accuser's case. And so what this means is that the accuser's case is thrown out. Um, And so there were two ways that... um, the accuser's claim that it is counterproductive to prosper the righteous could have been proved true. One, through what his wife said in 2.9, Job cursed God and died. Or second, appease God through confessing your sin. Um, 
Yeah, so Job, the case study for righteousness, shows uh, the case study for whether people love God because of what he does for them is, you know, proved untrue because um, Job showed that his righteousness and his love for God was not a pursuit of blessing and prosperity. And so, as I said before, at the end of the book, in chapter 42, I think the font might be really small, so I apologize, I didn't check it. In 42, 7 to 8, God says um, that the friends had spoken wrong about him. And so, this whole case thing might seem like it's just a bunch of ideas that don't really matter, but in this, there's actually a really convicting applicational message behind it. Do we try to be good because we think that God will reward us? Is that our motivation? Would we be good? Would we love God even if nothing good happened to us ever again? Are we willing to serve and love God, but only while he's blessing us and only while there are no difficulties? How are our hearts when hard times come? Do we become disillusioned and distrustful? Would we still passionately follow God and go to the nations if from this day on we never saw fruit from it and in fact were attacked with horrible things? What if we never saw another healing or another miracle? Never had another encounter with God and everything that we had was taken away. Do we love God simply for who he is, the beauty of his character, instead of all the benefits that loving him and serving him brings. And so, I think that's actually really powerful, and I was convicted by that. So, I hope you are too. So, that is the dialogue. You just breeze through it. Um, You guys are great. And so now we come to chapter 28. And so this is a chapter that has caused confusion for both scholars and readers alike. N.C. Habel, or Habel, I don't know how you say his name, says this about the chapter. It has been viewed as an erratic intrusion, an inspired intermezzo, a superfluous prelude, and an orthodox afterthought. I love that. I think it's so well put. Um, And so there are two interpretations for this chapter. Um, One is that it is in Job's voice, and he's the one who's speaking. And secondly, is that it's actually the author of the book. And so many people see this as a wisdom poem or a hymn, and I take that interpretation as well. And so I believe that the evidence points to 28 as an inspired intermezzo, and there are three main reasons. There's structural evidence, so this him separates the dialogue with the friends from the discourse to come. Um, there's evidence in the content because if this is Job, then he reaches conclusions that he never talked about before, that his friends never talked about before, and that Job never talks about after. And so the content indicates that this is not Job's thought process. And there's also textual evidence where in 29.1, it says, Job again took up his discourse. It's like, yo, we thought you were already speaking, so what's happening? Um, Take it or leave it. This is the interpretation that I hold to. If you don't, um, if anyone doesn't take this, then you just see it as Job's voice. 
And so I think this is a super fun chapter. Um, in the beginning, the author talks about how humans can dig deep into the earth where no animals can go and they can find gold and silver, but they cannot mine for wisdom. And so the question still stands in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Um, And so in 20 to 22, it is said, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from all the eyes of the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Um, yeah, I think that's funny. We've heard a rumor. Um, 23 to 28. And this is the conclusion on where wisdom is to be found. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure... When he made a decree for the rain, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to humankind, truly, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And so this is my summary of chapter 28. You can quote me. Um, Okay, so what is... The function of this interlude, what is its purpose? And so it shows that up to this point, even after the best wisdom that the world has to offer, true wisdom has not yet been heard. Um, yeah. And so what chapter 28 says is that humans do not have the vantage point from which to make a claim about whether God is just or not, with all the descriptions of humans can do this and that, but they can't do this and they can't find wisdom. Um, talks about the inadequacy of humans' vantage point. And so what the interlude does is it begins to shift the focus off of God's justice, which has been so talked about before, and begin to place it onto God's wisdom. And so chapter 28's placement gives us the hope that maybe there is something more out there than has already been discussed. And with that hope, it transitions the book from dialogue into discourse, where we will first hear fresh ideas from Aliku, and then a revolutionary perspective from Yahweh. Okay. So, the discourse. Um, yeah, 29 to 41. <clears throat> and so, in this section, we have three different speeches from three different people, and it's not the short back and forth that we've seen before, but they're longer-winded speeches of words um, happening here. And so Job starts us off with the first discourse in 29 to 31. And in chapter 29, he reminisces about the good old days. um, And he explains why these were the good old days. And it was um, because I delivered the poor who cried and the orphan who had no helper. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy, and I championed the cause of the stranger. And so this chapter is really telling because what it says is that Job does not miss wealth or honor primarily, but what he does miss are the opportunities to do justice. To Job, righteousness truly is greater than reward. 
And so in chapter 30, um, this is Job sort of complaining about his current situation. Um, yes. So he's talking about all, how all of these dishonorable people are disrespecting him. He used to be a man held in high esteem. Job is now a victim. And then from 16 to 31, Job does two things, and he does it in um, a funny way. A blame sandwich. Yum. Okay, so from 16 to 17 and 27 to 31, um, Job expresses his brokenness over his situation. And he says, you know, and now my soul is poured out within me. The night wraps my bones. I go about in sunless gloom. Um, and so the emotions here are very similar to chapter 3, where Job cursed the day of his birth. This man's spirit is broken. And then in the middle of verses 16 to 31, Job turns his attention from himself to God. And he says this about God. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. And so Job is saying that all of this is God's fault, and it will be God's fault when death comes to claim what's left of Job's life. And so in chapter 31, we see um, sort of the climax of what Job talks about, and it is Job's oath of innocence. And so... um, Here, he talks about how he's innocent in a wide spectrum of behaviors, and it's very repetitive. And for the most part, Job is making conditional statements like, if I have done this bad thing, then let this bad thing be done to me. And so we will look at one example. In in chapter 31, verses 16 to 23, Job says, if... I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or a poor person without covering. If I have raised my hand against the orphan, because I saw I had supporters at the gate. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. And so the whole chapter sounds very similar to this. And so what is Job doing here? Well, he's challenging God in what can see a very roundabout and vague way to us. How is Job's statement about his innocence a challenge to God? Um, Well, remember, God hasn't been speaking. God hasn't been acting. And Job uses this to his advantage to try and twist the arm of Yahweh um, into court. And so Job is saying, if I am wrong... And lying about my integrity and my character, then strike me down, God. If I am right, and I do have integrity and righteousness, continue doing and saying nothing. And so God is, Job is using God's apparent um, inaction and silence to twist things around to his favor. 
And so throughout the book, Job has made accusations that God is not just, or he is at least not acting just in the moment. Um, and it comes to a climax here. This underhanded challenge through Job's oath of innocence creates a tension. And we, the readers, ask the questions, you know, will God stay silent after this? Will he send lightning to strike Job down? And so let's think back to the trial. As we've already talked about, the accuser's case has been thrown out because Job passed the two tests. Um, Now there's a twist, because in the trial against God's policies, um, Job has a counterclaim, and that um, it is unjust for God to allow the righteous to suffer, or put in a more easy way, I think. It isn't fair that God allows pain in the lives of those who love him. Oh, I can't reach it. Okay. I like visualizing things, so that's why I do this. to allow suffering in the lives of the righteous. And so this is Job's claim. All right. Um, Okay. And so Job thinks that he's the one on trial, and so he wants to win. Um, However, because it's actually God's policy that's on trial, Job is pursuing options that would mean God loses. Job tries to force God into court through attempting to manipulate him by oath. And um, there are two ways that God could lose the case against Job's counterclaim. First, if God is unable to explain Job's suffering. Um, Yes. The second is if God admits that he did act unjustly towards Job, holding the retribution principle as true, and then apologizes which would make him a god not worth serving. And so I hope that you guys see a little bit of the tension in what's at stake with Job using this oath. Um, And so let's keep this tension in mind as we move forward. You know, will God stay silent, or will lightning come strike Job down? Um... So before we wrap this section up, um, I um, okay. Um, yes. Before we take our second break, um, I just wanted to wrap up this session, um, at least this part of the session, was something that God was really speaking um, to me during my prep. And so throughout this book, we see Job base his ideas off of God. Um, You see him base his ideas off of his experiences and his emotions. And so he says these heartbreaking things about God. 
He passes by me, and I do not see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. If I go forward, he is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. To the right, but I cannot see him. I cry to you, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you merely look at me. Why do you hide your face? And so Job feels utterly abandoned by God. And I, I feel this when Job says it, and I hope that you feel the emotion here too. You can almost picture him sitting there in the ashes, crying out in anger and pain to God, and you can almost hear him. Job feels like he has been abandoned by God, and yet we know that this was not true. God hadn't abandoned the person that he called my servant, the one who God saw as an example of righteousness and faithfulness. Why then does Job say all of these things? Well, his subjective experience of God turned, no, his, his subjective experience of life influenced what he believed about God. Although Job felt like this was true, it was far from the truth. And honestly, I don't blame him because I know I have often felt like this, and I wonder if some of us in here have felt the same. Um, we may feel this way when we're going through stuff. <laughs> um, and we may feel as if God has turned his back away from us and turned his face from us. <clears throat> But just as it was not true that God had abandoned Job in his pain, it is true that he does not abandon us in our pain now. And so this is a very dangerous thing that we can do in our own lives, and we must be aware of it. Does our subjective experience of God dictate what we believe to be true about him, whether good or bad? This is ultimately, I think, the most important thing. Our depth of knowledge about God's character must be vastly deep in our present circumstances. Um, and with that, we will take our second break now.